Well, it is good to be back. Although I can't help but notice, I'm gone one week, one week, and a clock appears on the pulpit here. (laughs) What's going on here? Some sort of coup. It does tell me the temperature and everything, though. It's kind of nice. I unplugged it, by the way, so it's... uh... Turn with me to Acts chapter 5. It's actually a very nice clock. Acts chapter 5. And I am blessed to say, for my benefit and my family's benefit, it was exactly six years ago today that I preached my first message at Grace Bible Church. And I am thankful for that. It's been a great time. We've preached about 600 messages in that time, and we hope to replicate that in the next six years. Acts chapter 5. One time I was asked a question by a devoted church member in another church. It was um, a like-minded church in doctrine and in practice. I know the pastor. He's a friend of mine. But this member had occasion to ask me the question. It's a question, frankly, I would probably put in the top five of questions that I've been asked more than any other as a pastor. This believer had a close friend in the church who had been in a difficult church situation previously and so had decided against church membership. Now, in this church, the friend would attend church, attend Bible studies, even give regularly, but still refuse to become a member. And the question that was posed to me was, what can I say to my friend? The, the friend, my friend gives the air of knowing more than I do and really of knowing better than our church leadership. What can I say? And that's a difficult question, but it is an important question for us. It's a particularly important question in the American church because there aren't many real life consequences for choosing not to be a member of the local church. There really aren't any consequences. In the ancient church, the consequences for both being a member or for being mildly associated with the church were very real and very severe. And we'll get to that later. But this is really a question of sacrifice, a question of commitment, of asking the question, who's really a part of the body of Christ and how do we know? Just by virtue of the fact that you show up every Sunday, does that prove that you're a part of the body of Christ? doesn't prove anything except that you have nothing better to do on Sundays. A few weeks ago, I began a topical series looking at the Church of Jerusalem as a model for us to consider what I'm calling our gift to Jesus. And this is reflecting the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ desires a church that's wholly committed and devoted to him. It also reflects the fact that we have a a precedent in the churches of Revelation 2 and 3 that the Lord does, in fact, evaluate local church bodies. He does do this. And the reason for this series is to really remind us of our devotion, our commitment to the bride of Christ, to the church, as we approach our joyful generosity giving campaign, which we're going to kick off at the end of this month. Because if you love Christ, that ought to engender a love for his church, which ought to be reflected in our faithful support of all levels of the local church. It's like, you can't tell me I love your family. I just don't like some of the members of it. No, we're a package deal. Now, I've called this our gift to Jesus in honor of the Christmas season, but it could just as easily be called our New Year's resolutions for Jesus as a church. Previously, we looked at giving to the Lord, first of all, a well-ordered church, which is a church in which the members know what to do and the leaders know what to do. We looked at giving to the Lord a reliant church, a church that's reliant on the power of the scriptures and reliant on the power of the spirit. 
And then we looked at a prayerful church, a church that prays in every occasion that we can think of, powerful, dominating prayers. We looked at prayer in waiting, prayer for leaders, prayer for servants, prayer in death, prayer in crisis. Church of Jerusalem prayed all the time. Today, what I'd like to look at, our gift to Jesus or our church New Year's resolution to Jesus, so to speak, a sacrificial church, a sacrificial church. And a sacrificial church is characterized by two forms of sacrifice. First of all, sacrificial commitment and second, sacrificial association. Sacrificial commitment and sacrificial association. They're actually very similar, but there are some nuanced differences that we'll look at And so this might be a useful way to organize our thoughts. First of all, a sacrificial church is characterized by sacrificial commitment. Commitment. Now today, the word commitment and the word church are like on opposite ends of the spectrum together. They they, they don't exist together. They're oil and water. They're they're antithetical. And this has often manifested itself in, in one of the top reasons, by some surveys, the top reason that people say they changed churches, and that is that they failed to form significant relationships. And very often they will move more than once for that reason, which simply shows that they didn't commit wholeheartedly to anybody, any local body. And it shows a very typical and disturbing pattern in, in countries in which Christianity is still legal, is still okay, and that of viewing the church from the standpoint of a consumer rather than being part of the body yourself. You're not a consumer of a product and the product is the church. You are the product. You're the product of the cross of Christ. So how did the church of Jerusalem characterize itself when it came to sacrificial commitment? Well, in the very early days of the church, a a shocking event took place in the life of this new church, which which really set the tone. It really underscored the, the seriousness of what it means to either be a part of the body or a part from the body, that we're going to make a choice. This was an event which was emphasized holiness and righteousness and purity in the church of Jesus Christ. If you don't believe in church discipline in about 30 seconds, you're going to. Look with me at Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God." When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And of course, word of this would have gotten out into Jerusalem almost immediately especially since the new church was meeting publicly at one of the temple courtyards. 
And look at the response of the people of Jerusalem who were refusing to come to faith. The ones who would not come to faith, it's a very interesting and a paradoxical response. Look with me at verse 13. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And so in response to Ananias and Sapphira, the the people of Jerusalem wouldn't associate with the church, and yet they held the church in high regard, high esteem. Now, why is that? That that seems to be a contradiction here. Well, first of all, let's answer the question, why were they held in high esteem? Well, the church was held in high esteem because they had convictions, they they had commitment, they had something that was undeniable. And no persecution would make these believers compromise their faith, compromise their stand on the gospel, compromise their, their, their calling to proclaim Christ's death, to proclaim his resurrection. In other words, when Ananias and Sapphira died, not only did the church remain intact, it continued growing. Look at verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. This level of commitment is admirable whether you embraced Christ or whether you were looking in from the outside. Acts 2.47 says that the church had favor with all the people. So they were held in high esteem because nobody could deny these people were on to something. They were committed to something. And yet, why wouldn't many people associate with the new church? Well, the church was already enduring persecution for the public proclamation of Christ. Chapter 4 outlines these beginnings when Peter and John were arrested. And frankly, the persecution started on the day of Pentecost when the apostles were accused of being drunk. Those on the outside could see that being part of the church was to invite persecution, to invite punishment from the same governmental religious officials that first persecuted Christ and then persecuted the apostles. But there was something else that those on the outside could clearly see that the Christian was called to live a life of holiness, that following Christ means obeying Christ. Ananias and Sapphira had been struck dead for their deceit. Honestly, I think if that were happening today, two things would happen. First of all, the church rolls would drop dramatically and funerals would go up dramatically at the same time. And what happened in the church and in the community as a result of Ananias and Sapphira? What happened? Look with me at verse 11 of chapter 5. Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. The believers had an in-your-face reinforcement about how serious God was about being set apart, being holy, being real in the faith. This level of response to their deceitfulness wouldn't be forgotten for some time. As a matter of fact, Acts chapter 5 is proof that it's never been forgotten. Now, there's quite a debate. Were Ananias and Sapphira saved? Were they regenerate? I don't know, and we don't care. All we know is, is that it created fear as it ought to be. For those who refused to come to faith, they figured out that becoming part of the church at Jerusalem was a problem. You refused to come to faith. They held back. Why? Because if I come to faith, I'm going to get gotten from the outside, and if they don't get me, God's going to get me from the inside. That I'm surrounded. But nothing could make the true believers abandon the faith. And of course, we know from elsewhere in the New Testament that true believers can't abandon the faith. It's not possible. But what's so moving and what's so touching, what's so amazing about this 
is that the church as a whole was much more concerned about pleasing God than pleasing men. They weren't trying to make anybody else happy. To please God, they would preach Christ. They would endure persecution as necessary, which included living holy lives to avoid the possibility of God's swift discipline. I always wondered if when Peter was pinning part of 1 Peter, if he was thinking about Ananias and Sapphira when he wrote in chapter 4, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Listen, we have made far too big a disconnect between coming to faith in Christ and joining with his church. We've disconnected those two. But the New Testament doesn't make that disconnect at all. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul goes to great lengths to make an extremely, extremely close connection. And I want to show this to you. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Just a couple of books over to your right. 1 Corinthians 12. And in this passage, Paul will give a, a lengthy illustration to point out the vital connection of being part of Christ and being part of the church. And we'll just make some observations here, just kind of a list of connections between having faith in Christ and being part of the church. The the first connection, we'll just say that the people of Christ are part of one body. The people of Christ are part of one body. Verse 12, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Now, someone might say, and this is the old argument against church membership, some of them might say, well, that just means I'm part of the church universal. I'm, I'm part of all the church, the, the believers of all history. That, that doesn't mean I need to be completely committed to a local gathering of believers. Well, actually, the rest of this passage makes that way of thinking absolutely ludicrous. That, that line of thinking is that, that, that I can be part of the whole, but that I can be separate from the whole at the same time. And the Apostle Paul is going to go on to use the illustration of body parts, and I'll I'll, I'll key off of that. That's like a finger saying, I'm part of the whole body, I just don't like the hand that I'm attached to. And so I'll be detached from the hand, but I'm part of the whole body. No, if you're attached to the body, you're attached to the local church. You're attached to the local church as an expression of your attachment to the church universal. And someone who says, I don't really want to be part of a local church. I would say, are you part of the church at all? Here's a second connection between faith in Christ and being part of the church. We've been made to drink of one spirit. We've been made to drink of one spirit. Verse 13, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now, some would say, well, God has led me to be separate. God has led me to be alone. God has led me to just have this little Bible study in my house, not a real church. Really, the Spirit of God leads you to do something completely opposite of what the rest of the church does? No, I don't think so. This is what makes us part of one body, is the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God in us. It tells us in in 1 John dozens of times that we love the church. We love to gather together. Here's a third connection. We're, we're all different parts of the body, but we are part of the body. We're all different parts of the body, but we are part of the body. 
Verse 14, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? The context of this whole passage is spiritual gifts that different people have different gifting that they're to use where? In the church. It means that we all have a function and that we're all called to fulfill this function in the church. And, and someone might say, well, I've started my own ministry. You don't have the right to do that. You do not have the right to do that. Jesus has started one ministry and that is the church of Jesus Christ. And any ministry, and I use that term loosely, that will not associate itself with the church is an illegitimate ministry. The church is what Christ promised to bless, not parachurch organizations. He promised to bless his church, his bride. Here's a fourth connection. God has arranged the members of the body as he chose. He's arranged the members of the body as he chose. Verse 18, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. A couple of things to emphasize here. First of all, God has ordained that we do our part. But secondly, God has gifted you to do your part. He's given you the gifts to do that. But there's no option for, I've decided not to do my part. When somebody gets to the point where they're too good for the local church, they're saying, I'm too good for the bride of Christ. How would this go over? I invite you to dinner and you tell me, I would love to come, just want you to know, can't stand your wife. What am I gonna say? Then you're not coming to my house because if you love me, you're gonna love my wife. In fact, if you're really smart, you'll love her even more. That doesn't make sense. I love Christ. I just... His church is just so filled with problems and, and things. I'm just not going to love the church. No, that's not, a, that's not an option. Here's another connection. They're all over the place. A fifth connection. God forbids a lack of connectedness and interdependence. He forbids a lack of connectedness and interdependence. Verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. That is a negative command. You are not to say, I don't need the local church. You are not to say that. Here's a sixth connection. God designed the church to need all of us. God designed the church to need all of us. And before I read this text, some of you sometimes have come to me and you've said, I think the only spiritual gift I have is the gift of idiocy. I, I, I just don't feel I have anything to offer. I feel like I'm the... I feel like I'm sort of the, 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 the heel of the church. I, I'm the unspeakable parts of the church. I don't, I don't feel worthy. Well, Paul addresses that in verse 22. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are, what's the word? Indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. In other words, the, the weirdos and the difficult people in the church, we're to cherish them. Because you know what? 
if you were to see that person in his glorified form, you would probably accidentally fall down and worship him. We are made up, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, of those who are not noble, who are not wise, that we're kind of the outcasts of the world. And we are those brought into the kingdom. In verse 25, that there may be no division of the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. I'll give you one more connection. There's no place for being a partial part of the church. There's no place for being the partial part of the church. You're either in or you out. That's it. You're in or you're out. You don't get to be somehow an aloof part of the body that doesn't do your part. Verse 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. The connection between being in Christ and in his church is profound. You understand that? It is profound. The church at Jerusalem demonstrated sacrificial commitment. In a way, honestly, I think it's almost a shame that church membership doesn't invite the sort of cost that the church of Jerusalem endured. I think church membership would be seen much less as somehow a person gracing the church with their presence and much more as an indicator that I belong to Christ. But their sacrifice wasn't just in terms of commitment. It goes even deeper than that. Their sacrifice was also in terms of association. And so secondly, a, a, a sacrificial church is characterized by sacrificial association. Turn with me back to Acts and look at chapter 4. Do a little Bible drill here. Acts chapter 4. I, I honestly think that America is the most difficult nation on earth to preach a willingness to sacrifice because there are so many distractions so many other things to be involved in. There's soccer and baseball and career and education and tennis and football and hockey and dance lessons and music lessons and travel and drama and television. There's movies, there's Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, Google, the internet. There's books, there's houses, cars, shopping, health, gym memberships, concerts, hobbies, the pursuit of wealth, business, I mean, I could go on and on. But to be honest with you, the pursuit of personal happiness is a relatively new phenomenon in human history. That's a relatively new thing. For most of history, the average person was primarily concerned with day-to-day sustenance and survival. In the church of Jerusalem, all those distractions I just listed, they weren't there. And they were literally in in danger because of their faith. They were in danger by virtue of their association with Christ, with the apostles, and they were in danger by virtue of their association with one another. Look, in the new church, you didn't have Netflix, you didn't have restaurants, you didn't have anything else to do. When the sun went down, you were with your family, and the new believers, they said, let's gather together, and they had church every day. Every day, someday at Grace Bible Church for my birthday, I want to have a church service every night for a week just to see what that's like. But the true believer in Christ in the Jerusalem church knew that that punishment and persecution and even death was a small price to pay for faithfulness. The worst that could happen was death that results in me instantly being in the presence of Christ. This sort of courage took the Jerusalem church to these great heights in terms of their willingness to sacrifice. 
And listen, persecution began almost immediately and got increasingly worse. Let me just track this for you. The first arrest happened in chapter 4. The disciples were imprisoned for preaching the gospel. Chapter 4, verse 3, they were commanded to stop. And their response has been the, the standard, the gold standard of, human, uh, of Christian sacrifice ever since in the church. Look at chapter 4, verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. That's the gold standard. The second arrest happened in chapter 5. Chapter 5, look with me at verse 17. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. So you have this arrest. They were ordered not to teach in the name of Christ. But how did they respond? Verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. This time they weren't just scolded. This time they were beaten and they were again told not to preach in chapter 5, verse 40. And again, their response has been the gold standard. It has set the tone for how the true believer responds to persecution. Chapter 5, verse 41, after being beaten, then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, ha, they did not cease preaching, teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Ha is not in the text. That's my interpretation. Then things got really serious. No more scolding, no more beating. The third arrest was that of Stephen and they made an example of him by stoning him to death. And now somebody died for Christ. The fourth arrest now is church-wide. An all-out open assault happens on the church, a scattering of the church away from Jerusalem. Look with me at chapter 8, verse 1. The second half, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. You had now church meetings being raided. Verse 3, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. But the precedent was set, which has continued on throughout the 2,000-year history of the church, that persecution only deepened their commitment to the gospel and to spread the good news of Christ. Look with me at chapter 8, verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Every time Satan has tried to destroy the church, he only makes things worse for himself. But I want you to notice something. How did the officials in Jerusalem know who to go after? How did they know? By virtue of association, those who were officially part of the church. If you were a Christian, you were part of the church. You were associated with the church. And this was not a loose association. This was not just an attendance, an occasional deciding to to show your face. In fact, to show you this, I want to review one of the most key parts of Acts. Turn with me back to Acts chapter 2. We've looked at this before, but I want to look at it from a different perspective. The perspective of association. Acts chapter 2, verses 41 and 42. 
Acts chapter 2, verses 41 and 42. This is right on the day of Pentecost, right after Peter's stunning sermon in which he sees 3,000 come to faith in Christ. Acts 2, 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Three-step process, which took you from being outside of the church into the church. Here's the three steps. Step one, faith. They received the word. They had faith. They believed what they heard. Step two, baptism. This didn't save them, but it was part of becoming part of the church. It was a public declaration of identifying with Christ. And then step three, membership. How do we know that he's talking about membership? There were added that day about 3,000 souls. How do we know that? Because somebody was counting. Somebody was saying, one, two, three, four. I don't know who the guy who was counting. I would not want to be him. But somebody counted. Now, someone could just say, well, that's just how many people were saved that day, not how many people joined the church. Acts 2.42 destroys that argument, puts it on the ground, puts a heel in it, sets it on fire. Acts 2.42 says otherwise, this group of 3,000 were immediately devoted to their fellowship together at a deep level. So look at their association together, their membership, Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, we, we've said before that this is speaking of the body of teaching by the apostles as received by Jesus, from Jesus Christ himself. And I've emphasized the context, the, the content rather. What is it that's being taught? But in this particular case, for example, I am giving the apostles' teaching right now when we read from the New Testament. But in this case, who is teaching the apostles' teaching? The apostles are. The apostles are. The the church is submitting to the teaching of the leadership. They're already embodying the spirit of what Hebrews 13, 17 would later say, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And they devoted themselves to the fellowship, not to fellowship, but to the fellowship, a specific body of local believers, not just people in general who believe Christ. They devoted themselves to this fellowship, definite article, And I said before that this word for devoted themselves to, it means to stick close by, to continue to do something with intense effort. Let me add another nuance to this. It also means to do something despite difficulty, to do something despite challenges. That word is used elsewhere. Acts 1.14, they devoted themselves to prayer. Acts 2.46, attending, it's the same word, devoting themselves to the temple together. Acts 6.4, the apostles would devote themselves to, to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And in that use of the word, in Acts 6, verse 4, they devoted themselves to the prayer and to the ministry of the word. We get a massive comparison. The church members are to be as devoted to one another and to the fellowship as the leaders are to the ministry. If you perceive, and I hope you do, if you perceive that the leadership of Grace Bible Church is intensely devoted to you, according to Scripture, according to that Greek word, you're to be just as intensely devoted to one another. That same level. 
This is the idea of unparalleled association with the local body of believers despite difficulties. Now, there is an obvious exception to this. That if the shepherds of the church deny the biblical gospel, I would argue that's not a church anymore. That's an exception. But despite that exception, in the church of Jerusalem, here's some things you never heard. You never heard, I have a problem with the church's view of the end times, so I'm not going to be a full member. You never heard, I think the church should do ABC better, so I'm not going to do, be a member. You never heard the meeting place at Solomon's porch doesn't have comfortable enough chairs and there's no air conditioning, so I'm not going to be a member. You never heard, I think the church is too focused on a certain style of music, so I'm not going to be a member. If I hear another harp, I'm going to throw up. You never heard, I don't agree with the pastor's view on superlapsarianism. Who even cares what that is? You never heard, they're a little bit too Calvinistic for my taste. You never heard, I don't agree with their exact form of church government. You never heard, I don't agree with this counseling that happened over here that I really absolutely know nothing about. The church was filled with brand new believers and yet they're already making their way toward holiness. As we've seen, they're they're less concerned about petty differences and, and more concerned about being devoted to the fellowship. And in the center of this fellowship is the, the pristine and shining, glorious gospel message. They're devoted to the gospel. Listen, this church wasn't offended at sermons on serving. They were serving each other every day. They weren't offended at messages on listening. They were listening to sermons every day. They weren't offended at messages on giving. They were giving fortunes and land and cash and goods to the church every day. And they certainly weren't offended at messages on evangelism. They were losing their lives for their witness for Christ. The church at Jerusalem, I believe, with all of my heart, would hang their head in shame that those believers in the 21st century who are anything less than all in. Because in the church of Jerusalem, if someone said, well, I attend, but I'm not a member, they would interpret that to mean that you're not a believer in Christ. And you say, well, that's 2,000 years ago. Let me tell you what the church does in countries in which Christianity is illegal today. That if you attend, but will not become a member, it will be assumed that you are a potential government informant. Because you're not a member. You're not part. Now, each local church makes its own particular system for establishing a membership, for creating a way to publicly stand for and with Christ. With this local body, we have freedom in this area. Churches in countries in which Christianity is illegal, which Christians are persecuted very often, they have no written records of members, and that's to protect them from arrest and so forth. That's not necessary in our case. So we have a written application. We have a process to go through membership that as we are to do according to 1 Peter 5, that the elders are the shepherd, the flock of God who are among us. And membership is how we know who is among and who is not among. But the New Testament does clearly prescribe membership. Baptism indicated being in Christ and in the church. We don't run a baptism service. I get phone calls or emails once in a while from somebody saying, I'd like for you to baptize one of my kids. And I say, no, unless you're going to come join the church because the two are connected. The churches historically have counted members. The church in Ephesus kept lists of members and lists of qualified leaders. First Timothy 5 tells us this. 
First, First Peter 5 commanded elders to shepherd the flock of God among them, and membership identified who they are to shepherd. Hebrews 13, 17 commanded believers to submit to local church leadership, meaning that believers were to choose a set of leaders in whom they would place their spiritual care. Now, the Apostle John did indicate it was possible to be an attender, but not a member. But here's how he evaluated that. Very often, quote, they went out from us because they were not of us. In the healthiest churches in the New Testament, Thessalonica, Philippi, Jerusalem, you never get even a hint of any sort of partial members. They're proclaiming the gospel together. In many cases, they're being imprisoned together. They're being beaten together and they're dying together. No partial membership. Now, many still feel this is a matter of conscience. I think the New Testament is abundantly clear on this. But let me paint this scenario for you. One that probably none of you here have ever lived through. Christianity is suddenly made illegal in the United States. You think that can't happen? And in the middle of this worship service, those doors back there fly open and coming through the door are a couple of dozen authorities pointing guns, telling everybody to sit still. And the commander comes forward, he takes the microphone from me, and this happens in other parts of the world. This is not fantasy. He takes the microphone from me and he says, I want to know who the leaders are. And our elders would stand up and he would say, he would point a gun at one of them and say, come here, I want you to print a list of all your members now. And so one of our elders would go into the office there, somebody pointing a gun at his head. And he would go on the computer and go to the grace net and he would hit print where it says, members so he would bring this list out here and he would stand back up here still taking the microphone and he would say when i call your name i want you to get out your form of identification your driver's license your social security card or your passport whatever it is and when i call your name you get over to this side of the room and you sit still so he begins calling names and all the members are over here on one side and a few others are over here Now, some of them, they're just driving through Bakersfield. They're like, man, I just stopped for the night here and wanted to go to church. You're you're free to go. So they, they, they run out. But to all these on this side, the leader says, I don't know why you're here, but you're free to go, but you have about one minute to decide. Go. Listen, ever since the church of Jerusalem, even the world identifies Christians as those who are members of the church. You understand that? That scenario I just painted has happened a thousand times over. That's not fantasy. Listen, there's a church in the New Testament that was plagued by a sense of oversatisfaction. They had everything they needed in the world. They had wealth. They had prosperity. There was no cost to being a member of the church. They didn't have a sense of urgency for the gospel. They didn't have a love for the church. They they certainly had no sense or call of being sacrificial They were characterized by being mildly associated with Christ, mildly associated with the cross, mildly associated with each other. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself made his famous statement to this church, the church at Laodicea. He said, I know your works. You are neither what? Cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. 
So because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's a Greek way of saying you make me sick. There was yet another church in the New Testament made up of all new believers. They had all kinds of problems. They had problems with their understanding of end times. They they were new in their faith. They were infantile in their grasp of spiritual concepts that almost everybody in this room would find basic. And yet they're commended by the Apostle Paul. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. And this is, of course, the little baby church of Thessalonica. They had nothing and received a commendation. Laodicea had everything and are threatened with their very lives. So, what was Jerusalem's secret? How were they sacrificial first in their commitment and how were they sacrificial in their association? Well, it is the same secret given to the church at Thessalonica. Really quite simple. Just listen. You don't have to turn here. The Apostle Paul gave three commands to the leaders and three commands to the members. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13, you don't have to turn. I'll just summarize it for you. To the leaders, three commands. First, They were to labor in the ministry. There's two different Greek words that are used for this to emphasize that ministry takes time, it takes effort, it's something you devote your life to. The second command, they were to provide authority and accountability. They are to be the authority in the church. Paul says that they are, quote, over you in the Lord. And third, they are to nuthateo, admonish, teach, instruct, Dr. J. Adams coined the term nuthetic counseling from that word, meaning to instruct from the Bible, that the leaders are to provide nuthetic, biblical preaching, teaching, counsel. That's it. That's what they're to do. What are the members to do? You get three commands to the members. First, respect the leaders. It literally means to know them, to know their heart. This has the major implication of listening and regarding their instruction. The second command they were given, esteem the leaders very highly in love. It it means literally regard them beyond all measure in love. And the third command given to the members, my favorite one, be at peace among yourselves. Don't get into conflicts. Forgive one another. Get along. What does that imply? That implies vital life relationships, living your life among the body of Christ. How beautiful and how simple Leaders, labor, provide authority, admonish, members, respect, esteem and love, be at peace together. The great Charles Spurgeon, one of my heroes of the faith, he preached on his commitment to the church. And he said this, if I did not believe in my brethren, I would not profess to be one of them. I believe that with all their faults, They are the best people in the world. And that although the church of God is not perfect, yet she is the bride of one who is. I have the utmost respect for her, for her Lord's sake. God forbid that I should rail at her of whom her Lord says, since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable and I have loved thee. The church is precious in the sight of God. Is the church precious in your sight? If you love Christ, you love his bride. 
If you say you'll sacrifice for Christ, you'll sacrifice for his bride. If you say you would do anything for Christ, then adorn and ornament and beautify his bride with your faithfulness, with your attention, with your selfless commitment and sacrifice. Now, I am aware that at Grace Bible Church, I am primarily, as the old saying goes, preaching to the choir. I understand that. I have, over the past six years, been astounded, for the most part, to observe the the outworking of these principles, of these admonitions, both to leaders and to members. I've seen it lived out. It's phenomenal. So let me speak to three groups this morning. The first group, members who have really striven to make the life of the church a central feature of your lives. You know who you are, and frankly, I could name you by name. Some of you are more well-known throughout the body just by virtue of what you do. Others serve more anonymously, but nevertheless, you're still very faithful. You're, you're sacrificial. You pray, you serve, you give. You're, you're here like clockwork. Some of you precious senior saints, you know that I love you and you know that the church cherishes you. You might have lost a step. You might have lost some energy. And I know that just getting through a day is now a challenge. I know that probably going to church is kind of your one big thing for the day. But you're still here every time you're able. You still pray you still delight in the church. You still sing to our encouragement. You pray. You bring us before the Lord and how we cherish you. Many others of you in this category, you've been learning, you've been studying, you've gone through Bible Training Institute, you've gone through Fundamentals of the Faith, you've been in a small group, you're here on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and if you're here faithfully, you'll hear 104 sermons a, a, a year you're striving for holiness and Christ-likeness. You're buying books in our, in our bookstore and reading them and growing. You're loving and cherishing your leaders and how great your reward will be. So to that group, can I say two things? Just simply quoting the Apostle Paul. First, from Galatians 6, and let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And the second thing I would say to you, what he said to the Thessalonians who were so, so well understanding in what they were to do. He said, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need of anyone to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another for that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia but we urge you brothers to do this more and more. I like the New American Standard to excel still more, to do more. There's a second group I'd like to speak to, precious members who are still perhaps beset by many other priorities. You have a heart's desire to be a sacrificial church member. You agree with that. You love that, that idea. But it may be that life chaos or, or other challenges keep you from doing all that you would like from being here regularly. Could I, for you, return to the Old Testament principle of the tithe to give God what is his first? In this new year, let me give you a simple method. Take a calendar, one that's made of paper, and take a pen, not a pencil, and ink in, first of all, the Lord's Day, 
Ink in, perhaps a small group. Ink in, perhaps how you can be a blessing to this body, serving in various capacities, and then fill in all the other various concerns and worries of life. Give him what is due him first. Remember your brothers and sisters in the Jerusalem church who were being imprisoned, beaten, even killed for their faith. And the third group I'd like to speak to, you precious attenders, rather, who who love God's word enough to keep showing up. You're, you're growing, you're, you're, you're being fed the word of God, you're enjoying the fellowship of the body, but for reasons known only to you, you haven't made a full commitment to the local church. Could I say to you also, remember your brothers and sisters in Jerusalem who served and met together and helped one another and submitted to their leadership in joy and thanksgiving, even to their own death. To some degree, they're watching To some degree, they're encouraging. They're part of the great cloud of witnesses spoken of in Hebrews 12. And to you, you have a unique opportunity to apply this message immediately. Today, we have a membership class. The pathway to membership at Grace Bible Church. And not only will you be obeying Christ, we'll serve you lunch. Can you get any better than that? But could I challenge you today? Either be in or be out. Be in or be out. So to the members who are making the church the heartbeat of their lives, press on. To the members who are still working toward that goal, you can do it. Start now. Be all in. And to the attenders who are still putting your toes in the water, stand up, take a deep breath, and jump in. Just go for it. And watch how the Lord blesses you. Shall we be together a church that the Lord Jesus Christ would grade and evaluate and give high marks to? Shall we do that together? Amen. I pray that's your desire. Our Father, we thank you so much for the church of Jerusalem, which is like, we're we're like the little brother and they're the big brother that provides for us an example and we can watch what they did and we can emulate them. Lord, I, I thank you and praise you for the attentiveness of this gathering. I thank you for the attentiveness of these believers meeting here on Young Street today. Part of the church universal, nevertheless, you have called us as fingers to be faithful not only to the body, but to the hand, to the local church, as well as to the church universal. And I pray, Lord, for any here today who have an even bigger issue, that they're not a member of the church for any reason other than the fact that they're not a member of Christ. And so, Lord, today, if for a man or a woman or a child here, the issue is not whether I'm a member of the church or not, little c, but the issue is, am I a member of the church, big C, the, the, the fellowship of Jesus Christ that began at Pentecost and continues on to this day? I pray that even now, Lord, even now you would open their eyes, even now you would open their heart to see and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that he went to the cross willingly for them to pay the penalty for their sin, to satisfy your wrath and to reconcile them to God. Might even now, where they sit, they might believe. Lord, I pray for Grace Bible Church. I read Revelation 2 and 3 and we see the Savior, Jesus Christ, the head of the church, walking, as it were, with his clipboard throughout the churches, evaluating and grading. And I pray for high marks for our church that we might be faithful as a body, 
as our gift to the Lord Jesus Christ, a purified bride. For it is in his name we pray and thank you. Amen.